Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Alt Med podcast, podcast about all things to do with alternative medicine. Um, your host here, Andrew Dowling, and I've got my co-host that I can see in a little thumbnail on the screen, Mitch Kurtz. Evening, Mitch. Hi, thumbnail here, reporting. <laughs> um, and we're delighted, actually, someone who, one of the earliest people that I think we connected with in the industry, it's been a long time coming to, um, to have him on the show. Um, he is the one and only, one of the most knowledgeable cannabis doctors from Byron Bay, arguably the mecca uh, for cannabis medicine. It is the founder of Anatomy <laughs> Clinics, Dr. Jamie Rickord. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Mitch. That was a great introduction. Like he's, he's been practicing. Thanks. Yeah, we've, awesome. been, we've been looking forward to this for a while. It has been a long time coming, hasn't it? Yeah, Indeed. absolutely. I mean, even thinking about when we first sort of connected with you in early 2020, just mm. how different the landscape is now. Um, I think that was pre the days of flower being widespread. So I don't think we're even talking about that as part of your um, prescribing practices or anything. So yeah, there's been quite a lot that's, that's happened in the last couple of years. Good point. Yeah. I mean, I say this a lot. It's like watching the world evolve in front of our very eyes, yeah. really, because that's what's yeah. happened in the last two years. It's just changed so yeah. much. Absolutely. Last five years out of sight. But like you say, when, when I first opened this clinic, flower was you know, average and hard to find and mm. no, no longer. Yeah. Now yeah. it's the, the calling card of most companies. So, but um, I guess for the, uh, you know, for the people watching that tune into our show, it might be good to just take them through a little bit of your background, how you um, got into cannabis prescribing and, and the rest, just so uh, everyone can get across it. Mm. It's pretty simple. I was a GP for a long time um and not a very happy one um and so some sort of big changes in my life and you know one of those points where you really reassess and go okay what what's what's making me happy what's not making me happy and hmm. what can i change um so general practice was one that I had to go so i decided to train as a psychoanalyst um which is nearly finished and then i thought well what else can i do pending that um which was open ananda so that's what led to ananda and then it's been um two years of it's been i mean i've had more joy in my practice than i thought would be possible as a doctor actually um but it's been hard work yeah is it kind yeah. of crazy to just hit the reset button and effectively build a you know, general practice, like a, a GP clinic around the prescribing of what is still an unapproved medicine. Is that just, I just kind of want to get into the, the psyche here when you, you made that leap, took that leap of faith. Did you kind of have a sense that this is just how it is now, but in the future, it will be a widely accepted medicine and I'm going to be a bit of an early adopter was what we, what we was going through your mind at the time? Um, what was going through my mind at the time? Gosh, I'm not sure it was sensible <laughs> looking back on it. Um, I've just always been very passionate about this plant. Um, and, uh, you know, especially a couple of years ago 
we were, excuse me, you know, the, the, the revolution was beginning, plant medicine, whether that was cannabinoids, psilocybin, mm. you know. So a lot of it was being part of that and making, making change, you know. Um, and did I think about setting up a GP practice? No, I just went out as an independent practitioner. Um, but I didn't really realize how hard it would be. You know, at that point, you know, we could do it. There wasn't really anyone in this region, especially in Byron. And I scratched my head and thought, gosh, well, cannabinoid clinic in Byron, that, what can go wrong? You know? Um, yeah. Fair assumption. Yeah, it was a fair assumption. Um, and it's going great guns now. You know, I'm super busy um, and lots of people are, are well. Some people are, are well and don't come back anymore because cannabinoids got them better. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't use it anymore um so there's that kind of short-term arc and then that longer term arc of seeing the the long-term change it can bring into people's lives mm-hmm. and then being part of this change um and from initially being someone who ran a cannabis clinic with their nose turned up to being oh that's where you want to go if you want to get better and nothing else has worked for you mm-hmm. so being part of that change which has been really I mean, there's been so many wonderful things to change in the last couple of years, but I think there are some other things in this industry that are not helping us. We're not changing the story. We're not moving forward and we're not showing the healing potential of these medicines. And I think that's quite sad because it, what, you know, there's this to say there's some, some stuff going on that could really threaten this movement. I think, you know, um, yeah. Well, it's still expensive. I mean, it's kind of, I think about from your perspective, I mean, it's, it's more work for you, right? In the sense that if, if you want to, if you're a doctor and you want to prescribe, you either have to be an authorized prescriber or you have to make a, an individual per patient application to the, the, the regulator, the TGA under the, the special access scheme. So there's more work there at that part of it. But then there's also more work because the government or the regulator expects and I'm talking now about um, the the regulator of GPs and their conduct, they almost expect that, well, if you're going to take the prescribing risk of treating someone with an unconventional, unregistered medicine, then it's incumbent upon you to do follow-up appointments. And you just described then how some people come and see you and then they get better. Is there a risk that you're actually supposed to just almost have a consult with them just so you can tick the box that you're still maintaining some sort of level of supervision over their journey or is it not really a thing anymore gosh there's so many ways to answer that (laughs) um i mean i think a lot of people feel they shouldn't have to speak to a doctor Hmm. um definitely up, up north i'd say yeah definitely around here i mean lots of people don't need to come here um I think one of the more disappointing sides of it is people wanting to come because they found out that medical grey flower is <coughs> pretty superior um, and that's what they want. Um, and that mm. isn't what this is about. This isn't about people getting flower because it's better than what they can get or when there's been floods and rain and there isn't any. I'm not here to replace that person, mm. you know. So that's disappointing, really. Mm. Because, you know, a lot of us didn't risk our careers so that people could get stoned. Mm. 
I didn't anyway, and I'm not interested in it. And I've become very clear about that boundary. There are those out there who are prepared to risk their careers so people can get stoned. And I tell patients where to go if that's what they want to do, because that's not mm. what happens at Ananda. Mm. So inter- that's obviously one of those, um, let's say, risk factors that you're identifying just before for the industry at large. Um, uh, what, what other things do you see as, as real threats to the, the longevity or integrity of, of the industry? I oh gosh, I don't see too many to the to the longevity and the integrity because the integrity of the medicine and the physiology and how it works will mm. win through. Um, when once people understand that this is a medicine that, but it can't be re- understood. It requires an integrative approach. You cannot understand it in a reductionist paradigm. Modern medicine is a reductionist paradigm. Everything is boiled down to the system, you know. Mm. Um, lots of things do you know i mean we talking about it before we started you know psilocybin you know that's another example six hours of an unordinary state cleans it up 25 years of depression for some people so if that's the case then everything that we're doing is wrong mm. by definition you know so our understanding of non-ordinary states changes in consciousness and how that can affect people and get them better and i think thc especially often results in a change in consciousness and that has a lot of healing potential as we're discovered across all these medicines and that can't be understood in the current paradigm we exist in in modern medicine it doesn't mm. fit mm. so i so, guess then sorry no I'll cut you off. i was gonna say so long term the integrity is there but it requires a it's a paradigm shift and that's mm. that's what we're working towards so in terms of that, I, I would love to get your thoughts on, on what the reductionist approach is missing and, and how, how are these, say, alternative medicines currently, as at least they're, they're um, termed, um, how are they working? How are they doing something different to traditional medicines? And, mm. and from a doctor's perspective, what's the best way you can break that down to the layman? Um, well, at least Andrew's a layman here for sure, uh, but... Um, but for anybody you listening, as simple as possible for my benefit, I'd be great. <laughs> yeah. mm. Well, the first question I ask doctors this a lot when I'm educating them. I say, tell me what you understand by homeostasis. What does it mean to be homeostatic? You Balanced. Know, yeah. Balanced. But what does that feel like? Mm. What does it feel like to be balanced and homeostatic? not hungry, not irritable, not exactly all of, those types of, all of the knots, right? Yeah. What does it feel like to not have anxiety? Well, I don't have anxiety. Right. So what does that feel like? Oh, I don't have a knot in my stomach and I don't, um, I can sleep and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't. What about what I do have, mm. which is peace and harmony and connection and ability yeah. to be in relationship and ability to have a relationship with myself an ability to go outside and be happy and look at the clouds and go to the beach and enjoy the water and hang out with my kids. Cause we keep talking as a lack of, mm. we don't talk about what you get from being homeostatic. So we give people cannabinoids and say, it will take away your pain or take away your anxiety. But what will you get? Well, you'll get a feeling of homeostasis. And what is that? Well, I don't know is the answer that most of the doctors say. So great. So why are you giving someone a medicine when you don't know what the effect of it is? And the answer is you feel connected, you feel regulated, you feel at peace, you feel the inner and outer are matching. You know, there's this like an ascent through what we might describe as a hierarchy of feeling where we feel better and better and better and better. 
So homeostasis to me is a very principle of human existence. We sit around the fire in community. We enjoy each other's company. We can connect. We can laugh. We can fall in love. We can have children. We can heal. That is what the endocannabinoid system does. And does it confer survival advantage? Yes, because if we're not happy and enjoying each other and having kids and sitting by the fire and we're not we're not moving on as a race. We're not able to be conscious and have art and have music and have, um, um, you know, discussions about, you know, poets or whatever. That's what makes us human. And so consciousness, which comes from the prefrontal cortex, basically, because that was the last bit to evolve, is just another layer in a machine that needs to be homeostatic in order to keep expanding up into let's say the pinnacle of that is a mystical state oceanic boundlessness a point where we go beyond subject and object and we're dissolved into something much better thc can do that psilocybin can do that meditation can do that yoga can do that so all of these beautiful practices and things that people have developed over many millennia as humans rely on being homeostatic so that's that to me is the point of cannabinoid medicine that's amazing. I, I'm because I I've never heard it described in such a a way where I guess the implications of people being you know properly treated in, in some cases is really a matter of them living out their full human potential. And yes. in the way you described, I want to just unpack one thing you were talking about with the layer of consciousness. Mm. that sort of sits on top of homeostasis when we're unhealthy or when we're feeling sick we kind of we have quite a degree of awareness um, and mindfulness of of what we're going through and it could be you know a flu or gee nearly everyone apparently in this country has had COVID but you're aware of that but when you're healthy I tend to find you sort of you don't exactly, well, I don't reflect on when I'm not sick, thinking about, well, I, I'm so healthy today. I feel great. Or, or this, you know, this type of thinking is homeostasis something that you think people should be actively mindful of and aware of, or is it yes. is homeostasis a flow state where you just, you are, everything's balanced and you don't even have to think about it. Well, it's both. Mm. I would suggest, but a flow, <clears throat> excuse me, a flow state is a good way to think about it. Mm. You know, I mean, say someone's not feeling right. You say to them, how are you feeling? And they say, I'm not myself today. What do they mean by that? Because they are themselves. You are yourself every day. Mm. That's who you are. But some days we're not mm. ourselves. Mm. You know, and you think about people who have pain, chronic pain, they, they become their pain. They become identified with their pain. Their pain infiltrates every aspect of their life. So there is no self. There's no expansive, joyful self that can connect with their kids and get on with work and just flow through life. It's a breakdown in their sense of being. So when you think about that homeostasis, the more homeostatic we become, the more this organism starts to sing. And then the peak of that would be a, a mystical experience where mind, brain and body processes are completely unified and We've gone beyond, you know, dualistic thinking, for instance. But that's fleeting. That's enlightenment or mm. an, an artificially induced state. And then there's disintegrating all the way down to the bottom when you're being chased by a lion, mm. you know. And there's no 
self in that there's no sense of who i am or connection i'm just trying to not be eaten yeah you know and then when that line catches you we go into this sort of depersonalization and derealization and that comes because we secrete opioids so there's a shutdown response mu and kappa opioids get released in the brain as an anesthetic because it's not cool to be eaten by a lion right so you want to dissociate from your environment there's some very cool data and studies coming out where they look at the fear cascade and how when we go into dissociation fight or flight fight or flight stress 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 dissociate lion childhood trauma whatever that's mediated by the opioid system and then bringing us back down to zero is being mediated by the endocannabinoid system so that's constantly trying to return us to that state of homeostasis which is sitting by the fire, relaxing, able to regulate, able to heal, able to connect. Mm -hmm. So the two plants, the two systems, forget about the plants, work in opposition. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly being stressed as humans. We have to be. And then when a stress response is maintained beyond adaptive, it becomes maladaptive and that starts to cause disease and trauma, et cetera, et cetera. So the returning of homeostasis to the system is the most important part of getting people to heal. So all those patients who stopped using cannabis because they got better, I'm not sure it was the cannabis that got them better. It was the cannabinoids that put them into a homeostatic state. And then from there, their body can start to heal because they're not being chased by lions and tigers. They're sitting by the fire with their family. So we're talking about distinct ways of being. Yeah. And that's what I'm observing more and more and more with how I prescribe. I just kind of have a basic recipe for everyone <clears throat> that isn't designed to treat a disease. It's designed to engage their endocannabinoid system. And then, oh, wow. I just, oh, it's like, great, you're back. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, actually the, the name of your clinic, Ananda, mm. comes from, sorry, I'll, I'll prompt you if uh, if I may, what, can you talk to us about, because it, it I, I take great joy when I talk to people who are you know, very sceptical about cannabis, you know, who have bought, well, who have been sold a lot of the, the war on drugs propaganda and um, have mm. a stigma towards it. When I tell them that their body naturally produces cannabinoids, <laughs> that, that tends to um, you know, piss a lot of people off, actually. Yeah. But, um, can you maybe talk to us about the role of anandamide? I'm just, sure. Yeah. Well, anandamide is our primary endocannabinoid, um, <clears throat> which is why I wanted to call the clinic Ananda. A, because it's referencing what I'm about to talk about and have been the, the, the phenomenology of homeostatic states. Mm. But it's also about the endocannabinoid system. And I think that's where this is being lost because you know, cannabis is great and the culture that comes with it. I'm, you know, I'm a great fan, but that's not what this is about. This is about medicine and engaging an inner healing physiology that brings us back to that homeostatic state. And the primary way that's done is through anandamide. So CBD doesn't do, it does a few things directly, but basically it, it blocks the enzyme that breaks down anandamide. So CBD is an anandamide reuptake inhibitor, essentially. It's boosting anandamide. And then THC is a partial agonist of the same receptor. So THC is sort of doing what anandamide does 
in the place of it and CBD is boosting the levels of it. Wow. And when you think about it like that, you balance those two, you stimulate the system and support it and stimulate the system. And then the anandamide is having its action. And what's ananda? Well, ananda is a Sanskrit word for internal bliss. So whoever named it anandamide realized that by balancing excitatory inhibitory neurotransmission in the brain, you're starting to return to this harmony. This, there's a frequency in there of regulation and homeostasis. And if you look into an, the Ananda states, the Hindu, Hindu practices, you know, epistemological, ontological perspectives are a deep embodied sense of self, loss of subject object, harmony between inner and outer, the, a locus of something that within which we can find bliss, whether that's our children, you know, some some God or Brahman. And it's a, it's an ascent, you would say, in a hierarchy of feeling. So we get to a meditative state where we are regulated within and without. And that's the point I make to my patients that possibly if we, there is some research, there's some guys doing some research already. Some guys did a, it's not the best study, but basically they're starting to prove that anandamide levels get boosted by meditation. They get boosted by exercise. So all the things that make us feel good is due to the endocannabinoid system and anandamide stimulation. A couple of studies have looked at ayahuasca and they found that anandamide levels are going up. And I, I do think in time that it's sure there's a 5-HT2A receptor that the psychedelics are working through, but they're down sort of top-down action is to balance the endocannabinoid system and bring people to that state of homeostasis where everything's working as it should. It's a resonance. As you can see it, be like, you know, you've seen the images of people starting to elevate. That's, they're extreme examples, but that's what happens when we start to really flow and function inside. <laughs> so I kind of think that's the physiology. And getting stoned, you know, it's a bit like, oh, actually... I don't know. I think kind of overdosing maybe on the THC because there's a point where you get the dose right, where it's really can be almost transcendental for people. And then they go too far and they don't enjoy it. They get anxious. So there's a lot in here of actually balancing these receptors and balancing these internal processes and then talking to people, connecting with them, making them feel safe, making them feel that they're doing the right thing, knowing what to look for. And then within there, something turns on. And when it turns on, they move forward. Are you finding that um, it pretty much all like mostly boils down to those two cannabinoids, THC and CBD, or are there other factors in cannabis that you're looking for as a prescriber? Yeah, for sure. There's, there's flavors, you know, um, basically it's CBD, <coughs> excuse me, CBD and THC. Um, but you think about the terpenes and flowers and why different flowers have different effects in different people. Certainly there's that, that's very much part of it. Um, I actually think THC is I less and it's really important, but not in big doses. That's how I see it. And I think it would be interesting to have lots of CBD flowers with different terpenoid profiles mm, so the people are vaping terpenes basically rather than vaping thc with terpenes and i think you know there's i'd love to get into some recipes where you've got a background thc cbd and then you're vaping terpenes and cbd flowers and that will then start turning on different receptors as well you know mm, that's very interesting and it also 
the other minor cannabinoids, like there's still limited um, research on a lot of them as we're still emerging through. But you know, have, have you have you played with any of that yet, or, or done much? Kind of not so much. No, okay. it's yeah. hard to know with the products. I mean, like so the you know the full spectrum isolate argument. I'm yeah. kind of, you know, I'm. I see a lot of people do really well with an isolate really 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 well with an isolate now mm. sure they're vaping a flower and they might have a thc oil so there's more broad spectrum things coming in but it doesn't mm. necessarily have to be in the cbd it can come through the flower or an oil if it's been reconstituted so this is the the beauty of it that we haven't even really begun yeah to get into you know so so maybe it would be very interesting to take you know, say a prospective patient is thinking about going to see a doctor and maybe they want to come to a Nanda clinics. What, what's a, what would a typical first consult look like if they came in to see, like what kinds of questions, what do they need to consider? What are they likely to get as a starting, you know, suite mm. of products? I'd be very, very curious. I think there's a lot of people that would be interested to know that experience. Good, good question. Um, it's as complicated as the people that, come through to be honest sure um <clears throat> it's very bespoke we we do know that but in terms of um i'm you know. very strict about qualification okay, okay. very strict and when um, you say that you mean oh you tick the boxes and you say the right things and if if i'm not happy or we're not happy then we we don't ask for a referral from everyone anymore but mm-hmm. i've got a fairly well designed onboarding process and it's fairly obvious where people are coming from so you've got that finely tuned bullshitometer, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. About five or six thousand patients is finely tuned. Yeah, um, gotcha. Northern New South Wales bullshitometer. <laughs> <laughs> I should sell them. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so your what what does the ideal candidate look like, and then what are they likely to expect? There's no such thing as an ideal candidate. I don't think a sick person is an ideal candidate. Mm-hmm. But what what does what does frustrate me more and more is when people come in because they want to get stoned, you know. So yeah. they're not they're not interested in they just want to come and get their cannabis legally, and they you know their requests like two three ounces a month or whatever it is is bonkers. It's like mate, I'm a doctor and it's an essay. It's just not going to fly, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then they really do slot in that using two grams a day is good for them. And that that's their medicine. And it's like, just nah, sorry, that's not good for you. And that's not your medicine. Um, maybe for some people, but two grams a day, really? Like, So who does I'm qualify? Who does qualify? People who, Obviously people who are sick, but what, what, what are the first line treatments? Yeah. Okay. So somebody who's tried, you know, uh, some type of painkiller, it hasn't worked or they've been severely ill as a side yeah, effect, something like exactly. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've had sense. patients approved by the TGA who maybe wouldn't be a typical, um, you know, there's, they're a bit outside the box, for instance, but we asked and it was all good. Um, okay. But I'm a big believer in oil, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm t- stimulating receptors. I'm engaging that physiology. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you don't do that by doing this all day with, with doses of THC, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You need to create a steady state. You need to have those receptors with, with molecules on them. So CBD does its thing, but I also think CBD, like we know it modulates the response of THC. So it limits the psychoactivity, but I, I just think as well, it locks it in. 
So you find those balanced oils get this, it's like catching a trade wind in the med. It just, and they go for hours and it's just stable. You take the CBD out and it gets a bit wobbly and a bit up and down. So the CBD is also, I think, locking that THC into that receptor and then reducing the psychoactivity. And then you just get this nice, long, sustained effect from mm. it, basically. So it's, it's just manipulating those molecules and then adding in the flower for when it's needed. But if you, you know, and I'm not talking about, well, no problems with people using it recreationally. I hope it happens one day, but medically, THC especially, it can be, it can be a potent molecule and drug of transformation and, and health, but it can also just put people in, a, in an emotional lay-by. They're just not facing any of the stuff in their life. Mm. That that's more difficult to deal with. But I think that's what I find most frustrating. That you know, I, I believe cannabinoid medicine is as radical as psilocybin and MDMA and psychedelics in how it approaches people and the profound effects it can have and why it does that. And taking LSD at festivals got nothing to do with psychedelic assisted therapy and using cannabis recreationally has got nothing to do with the proper application of it as a medicine. Mm. They're distinct. I've got a question actually, just because we've definitely, I think even in the two years that, um, that we've been connected, I I would say there are now fewer and fewer voices in opposition to medical cannabis. And even the most sort of reluctant staunch doctors have at least by now accepted in large part that for somebody who is treatment resistant to conventional medication for whatever condition they might um, have, that at least they can try medical cannabis and, you know, there's probably no harm done, um, particularly a CBD dominant product. Totally. I, I just, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested actually because your, um, I guess, characterization of, the power of these medicines um, and this this exercise as a GP and balancing everything. What would you say to somebody who comes from that traditional pathway of medicine who might say to you, that's all well and good, you know, Dr. Record, but actually we, we have, you know, phase three clinical trial data for opioid use to, to treat acute pain uh, conditions and, you know, these are registered medicines. Um, they're safe. You know, why mm. should we, why should we take a punt on, on an unapproved therapeutic good, you know, uh, like until your medicines are basically registered or listed on our um, Australian yeah. register of therapeutic goods, why should I take these seriously and be prescribing them for patients? Yeah. Good question. Um <laughs> Gosh, I could give you so many stories. Um, I guess the first question I got a bit frustrated with was, where's the evidence? Which Mm. is essentially what you're saying. Mm. And I come back and say, great question. Do you know how much it costs to develop Prozac or Endone? And they look at me a bit blankly. And I say it's 350 million US dollars per drug to get it registered. That's Mm. what it costs. Now, that process came in, interestingly, after thalidomide, and they had to devise a process to protect the public from drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, doctors' prescriptions. As an aside, how did all medicine begin? 
it began with people trying things on people you know the volatiles the, the anesthetics that are used in anesthesia you wouldn't get them on the market now because they wouldn't go through the trials plus they don't know how it works mm. so you can't ethically give it to people they still don't really know how it works but it's used every day in hospital because the data suggests that it's safe and it's been used for years but it got through long before this current model of registration registering drugs was in existence right so thalidomide let's protect the public so that's what they did <clears throat> the pharma company says well what about us how are you going to protect us because we've just spent 350 million quid developing this drug or you can have a patent so no one else can touch it for 10 years which is brilliant but how are you going to patent cbd thc mdma psilocybin all unpatentable drugs of transformation so the bottom line is sir you're not going to get your evidence because this is never going to fit into that model but while we're talking about evidence can you tell me the evidence for what you do prescribe every day so can you tell me the evidence for chronic pain and opiates can you tell me the evidence for ssris and depression because i can and it's shit yeah, but, but, but the, the argument from these people, and I... I <laughs> Tell us what you really think. I, I, well, it's true, though. If you look I'm at SSRIs, sure. right? Sure. They're no more effective for mild to moderate depression than placebo. Multiple meta-analysis, tens of thousands of mm. patients' data, no more effective for depression than placebo, mild to moderate. Marginally more effective for major depression in the first three months, then no more effective than placebo for major depression after three months. Because of the top tolerance, of is it? Like the no, they just don't up. work. Okay. Because it's a reductionist paradigm where they're saying that not having enough serotonin in the brain is why you're depressed. Mm. But if, if that's not the reason, then it's not going to work. Yeah. On top of that, there's a new diagnosis. It's called serotonin withdrawal syndrome. It's in DSM-5. So not only are those drugs no more effective than placebo for mild to moderate depression, most people end up with serotonin withdrawal syndrome when they've been in, in them. So we then have to treat something that they wouldn't have if they weren't given that medicine that wasn't any better than placebo. Yeah. And they're dishing them out like Smarties. So I say to the GPs, do you look at the evidence? Because if you did, you wouldn't be prescribing those SSRIs for depression. But you are, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So please don't ask me about evidence. Yeah. Please don't do it. Because until you follow the evidence of the system that you're currently working in, you can't tell me that I'm not following the evidence and there is evidence and there's lots of trials and there's lots of data and there's lots of science around the ECS, but no, we haven't got phase three trials yet. Well, well, this is uh, the, the age old Hippocratic oath, right? Doctors give an oath to do no harm, you know, and, and yet through these PBS subsidized medications that, you know, that, that, that are totally, as you say, they, they're given out like smarties. You hear about people also withdrawing from things like benzos and the, 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 the torment that these things can, can have on, on their lives when just trying to get yeah. off them. I've never heard of anyone, you know, in agony when they just stopped taking CBD. And I, that's mm. something I should be asking you because you're actually the doctor. But have you heard of patients actually experiencing issues when ceasing cannabis oh. medicine? No. So I have a little mantra that I say every day to people. And I think that by definition, anything that you have to take every day for the rest of your life cannot be a medicine. Mm. It cannot be a medicine. If you have to take it every day for the next 30 years, that's not a medicine. That's a drug that you're taking to control some symptoms. But if you stop taking it, your symptoms come back. Therefore, not a medicine, not getting you better. Mm. Whereas cannabinoids 
A lot of people use them when they need them and then they go back in the cupboard. By definition, medicine, old school medicine, feeling crook, take it out of the cupboard, take it, sleep well, put it back in the cupboard. Right. That's a medicine. I'm in pain, going to use some THC today. Don't need it every day because I can deal. Whatever, you know? So one of the things I have the right to do is prescribe medicines. I earned that right after lots and lots of training. And the TGA have said that I can prescribe these medicines for these indications for people who have failed first line. So I take that right and I give it to them. And if they get better, we continue it. If it doesn't work, we stop it. Mm. So I observe what happens in front of me. And the change that you're talking about, Andrew, is happening because lots of good doctors are watching people get better. They're coming to see people like me and others, and they're going back and they say, I don't need the endone anymore. It's all right. I don't need the tamazepam anymore. I'm sleeping every night. I got this stuff. Yes, I know about the driving laws. Yes, I understand that it's unregistered, but hey, I'm sleeping and I don't need that stuff. So, mm. And then a lot of us are going, well, great. As long as you're better, as long as you're feeling all right, not doing anything silly, not going to get pulled over and swabbed and lose your license, not going to have problems with, you know, giving birth to frogs or growing another head or whatever the story is, because it's happening more and more. And that happened around here, just gradually, gradually, more and more people started referring patients to me and others like me. Mm. And sometimes it doesn't work, but a lot of them now come, hey, and then my doctor said, come and talk to you. Nothing else is working. Great. Let's give it a go. Doesn't work. Don't, don't buy it. Well, what do you think about people who, and I, I understand the current system in Australia doesn't really cater to the people I'm about to describe, but they're people who, you know, they, they want something for their well-being, you know, akin to taking a supplement or a vitamin or even a glass of red wine, you know, yeah. here and there in moderation. You know, if we talk, if we think about this Sanskrit word, Ananda, meaning joy, exactly. bliss, delight, is there any, do, do you, how do you feel about people who might come to you and they say, look, I'll be honest with you, doc, I'm, I'm not sick, but I want access to CBD oil for my own well-being, so that I can have it with my daily magnesium and, you know, vitamin yeah. B and D and everything. What, what do you say to those people? Well, I can't prescribe it under those conditions. Mm. That's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, which is sad. Um, but yeah. if we go back to where we started, right, the phenomenology of homeostatic states, all the stuff you guys said, which is the question, what does it feel like when you're not anxious? Oh, I don't have this feeling in my stomach and I don't have a dry mouth and I don't. But what about what you do have? Oh, I'm, you know, well, I feel connected and I'm in love and I'm happy and I go for a surf and I enjoy my job and I've got peace and harmony in my life. So my argument would then be that, that anyone who does not exist in a home homeostatic state should be entitled to use cannabinoids hmm. so so does that mean that people what happens to people who are in a homeostatic state well they don't need them but is there any harm in having or just it's just it's no fr fruitless no it's not fruitless at all it can elevate them further but we're talking about sickness to wellness as opposed to you know lots of people might go to the jungle and drink certain concoctions because they're chasing you know, a journey, no yeah, and also, you know, mystical state. But so they're not going to treat depression. They're going because they want, they want tripping balls in a malocco, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's what yeah. they're doing. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with that if you want to do it, but it's very different to treating depression or trauma or anxiety. Sure. And I, and I, but I think it's a continuum, and I'm, that's what I'm saying. I think that 
all humans, we're all humans on a very complicated planet that's just been through an absolute shitstorm for the last two and a half years. Mm. Everyone could benefit from a bit of mystical, you know. <laughs> Everyone yeah. could. Anyone, everyone could benefit from some homeostasis. They'll come back with a few lessons about things they're doing wrong and maybe they're being a bit of a dick sometimes and how they can improve their relationships with their kids and their work partners. So it's promoting that that I see as the narrative, helping people be better versions of themselves. And often some of these, there's a lot of highly functional people out there, you know, who've got trauma, who've got relationship problems at home, you know who who walk around hating themselves half the time and not enjoying their life now they're not they're not sick they might not be on a medication but they walk around with what i would call a disorder of self they're not they're not really happy in their own skin but they don't need to be medicated so that is an illness right i mean here's another good example you go down the beach on saturday night if they shut the bar does everyone start chatting and dancing no they all need a few beers to start chatting and dancing. So what does the beer do? Well, the beer treats anxiety because if they can't get down and dance and hang out and have a really good time and connect without beer, by definition, there's something in the way. Mm. And people are using alcohol to treat social anxiety. They get home from work and they need to de-stress. So they have a few beers just to de-stress, right? What does the endocannabinoid system do? It de-stresses us. It's a de-stress physiology. You're in a state and the cannabinoids bring you down. But we let them use beer. So, you know, to de-stress, the medicine of de-stressing and becoming homeostatic. So that's that's how I would frame it. That's how well, I would I am, approach it. I am, though, picturing a scene with people um, having, let's say, THC and then trying to dance and it's it's not a pretty picture in my head at least <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> though they might have their inhibitions uh, lowered um no. you know it's it's, it's a definitely a start well you could say the same thing about alcohol one thing I am curious to unpack a little bit further though you know talking about you were saying that anything you need to take uh day in day out is not um really a medicine how does that sit you know what's the difference between let's say cannabis and psilocybin for example in that do you see people not having to take cannabis every day after a while or are there people that do need to have it for prolonged periods of time because my understanding to date is that something like psilocybin or mdma and for certain conditions ptsd etc depression um it has the propensity to be curative more quickly let's say than something like cannabis uh depending on you know depending on a lot of factors but yeah really really curious to unpack your perspective on on some of the more schedule nine alternatives that haven't been mm. that aren't widely available yet that's a really good question i like it um where to even begin with that gosh um I just, I actually think cannabis does have the potential to be just as transformative. Mm -hmm. I just think we're not doing it right yet. Okay. Yeah. You know, like let's, let's just take anesthetics, right? Propofol, you know, the volatiles, the inhales. If you give them to someone out on the street, people start carking it left, right, and center. Yeah. It takes a lot of training and a lot of skill and a lot of understanding of the physiology and pharmacology of those drugs to be a skillful anesthetist. And I don't think cannabinoids and psychedelics are any different, but you have to understand how they're working. Yeah. And you've got to then use them in the right way. 
So uh, this is when I say a lot of people say, oh, I don't like THC. It makes me anxious. I say, oh, makes you anxious, does it? And they say, yeah, yeah, I get really paranoid. And I'm saying, are you sure? Or is it just showing you that you're really anxious and paranoid? Mm. And there's also, yeah. It's a non-specific amplifier, right? So whatever's there gets heightened. So there's all that THC, it makes me paranoid. And it's like, I'm not sure it does. I think it's showing you some unconscious processing that's going on that you're not really aware of. And then once people get that, that's, you know, with the right therapy or whatever, that's when you start having breakthroughs because you, it's the homeostasis. That's the whole basis of this argument that when we, when we, when we don't know how to be homeostatic, we have stress vulnerability, right? Mm. So we get stressed and we don't know how to bring ourselves back. And you know what stressed people look like. They're, they they can be really difficult. They're really struggling. They can be hard to be around. You know, if you think about, you think about those earliest interactions with children and mothers, the mother is teaching that child how to de-stress and relax the whole time. Mm-hmm. Just calm, you know, and that's a relationship, right? Now that is teaching the child, the baby about the principles of homeostasis. Yeah. You know, and homeostasis, you know, if you want to get really into it, like how do we model it? Well, it's it's a Mandelbrot, it's a fractal. So consciousness is a homeostasis is an unfolding fractal. Mm. It's just a Mandelbrot that represents and re-represents and represents and re-represents and keeps unfolding. And that's why you'll see golden ratios and Fibonacci and Mandelbrots throughout nature. Mm. Someone takes psilocybin, what's the first thing they start being presented with? just unfolding fractals yeah which is a metaphor for their own consciousness i think it just keeps unfolding and when that process has gone wrong through development that's why people are getting sick so all of these medicines bring people back to that homeostasis which is a dynamic state but it's self-contained it's you know it's a a spiral so yeah i think we're just not we're not really we're getting better at using them but you know i have a lot of patients who i give cbd to and that homeostasis returns and then they take it the next day and they say oh i didn't do anything i was like right but you were homeostatic right you felt balanced and centered and they were like yeah so it doesn't need to do anything does it because you're already there you can't take more to do the same thing when you're already in that place so that's the other thing from a medical perspective twice a day ongoing not true right dose twice a week become homeostatic carry on yeah then get de-stressed headache comes back anxiety big dose of cbd homeostasis returns continue so it's no that's what i'm talking about what does cbd do for you it makes me feel like this great so when you're feeling like that you take more cbd nothing happens no so you're wasting your cbd because it's Mm. done its job it's boosted anandamide the endocannabinoid system started they are regulating and homeostatic beyond that is getting high if it's thc and then people can start chasing that high and that's when the chronic use starts to become negative because people are chasing something that we have every minute anyway does that make sense so it's this kind of highly nuanced way of are you doing it there's nothing wrong with doing it because you want to um feel good have a couple of beers smoke a a vape whatever it's it's mostly really safe for most people and they can enjoy it and have a really nice evening but is that medicine yes it is if you're stressed sure 
but these are all such difficult topics in an you know medical paradigm that we live in at the moment mm. which is why so, i say to all the doctors just tell your patients they're going to feel good yeah mm. it's simple it's it but it's also you know that 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 point you were just making then about you know did you feel homeostatic did you feel balanced yes well then it doesn't need to do anything i think is really interesting because when you think about it, you know most people in Australia statistically have been prescribed cannabis for say pain, anxiety, sleep disorder. They're used to being prescribed something where it actually overcooks the balance. Mm. So for example, I had some surgery last year and to manage acute pain in the aftermath, they prescribed me Endone. Well, it, it, Endone didn't exactly just numb the pain. It went 15 steps further than that it provided this kind of low-hanging cloud that sort of fogged my brain and cognitive abilities, yet I felt this kind of warm euphoria. My breath became a bit shallow. You know, it, it went so far beyond just dealing with pain management. Right, and, yeah. You know, like, so this is the, the balance problem is that people are accustomed to drugs, approved drugs, I might, I might add, that actually go so far beyond what they really just need to do, which is just restore balance. Do you, would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. Mm. But if you take a, when you took the endone and you, you had surgery and you had a bit of pain and this whole other state came over you, that's what I'm talking about because that's a physiology, mm. right? We have mu and kappa opioids. And when they're secreted, we do it naturally to dissociate us from having our leg bitten off by a lion. Yeah. So that state you were in when you had loads of endone that was firing that natural physiology, you could have been eaten by a lion. It would have not been as bad because you were foggy, you're shallow breathing, you're dissociated from reality. Mm. So people with hyper stress become dissociate. They dissociate regularly to get away from their feelings and being in their body because it's too difficult. Yeah. You know? and, but then people can do that with THC as well. So they get used to dissociating and then they have a really big dose of THC and it's acting as a dissociative. Mm. And that's what I'm saying. And that's not good. It should be embodying. So if you've already, and people who already have got that sort of way of coping in their brain, obviously because of diff difficult times in their life where they've learned it, then you can't get around it. But there's lots of people in pain who don't dissociate regularly so they don't have that relationship with thc but basically opioids dissociate us cannabinoids bring us back around the fire and embody us mm. but it's not quite that simple because humans are really complicated so if if you're getting eaten by a lion the last thing you want is cbd basically basically <laughs> yes that's right because you're, you're going to be aware of everything yes. Or psilocybin, story. I would suggest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. So in, in terms of the, you know, we're talking about the opioid system, the, the cannabinoid system, uh, what systems are being engaged with psilocybin, MDMA, LSD? Well, all of them. Exactly. So this Same. is a really good question. <clears throat> so let's take MDMA because it's not a classical serotonergic hallucinogen. Mm. You know, it's an M, M, it was, I think it was Merck developed it in 19... 16 or something because they were trying to fight they were, they were researching blood clotting and they came up with one of the greatest pharmaceutical drugs ever made and then you know what happened right so there's a great book I, i'm really into effective neuroscience so the kind of why we feel the way we do there's this guy called yak pangsep who wrote this beautiful book called the archaeology of mind 
and the last chapter he's talking about engaging healing physiologies how can we help therapists do their job better he said wouldn't it be great when we've got nasal sprays of oxytocin because it will engage the seeking and the attachment and the bonding and the safety yes yak why don't you just give them mdma because when you're in that therapeutic relationship the, the that creates the secure attachment which then allows them to process pain that they can't get to in a normal state so it's a physiology of connecting and feeling oxytocin when we're with our mothers you know mm -hmm. when we're born that's what links us in and creates that safety i'm okay when we're okay we can express the very deep and painful things that might be preventing us from living our lives so it's a physiology 5-ht2a receptor you know dmt psilocybin lsd stimulate that and that default mode network opens up now physiologically as adults we live in what you call secondary consciousness so we're quite restricted you know and then when that opens up it's a primary state of consciousness which is more childlike so when you take when when you use one of these psychedelics that whole brain connectivity opens up and then all that stuff that's been stuck can start to be re-experienced and come through. So if people have got traumas or, you know, they've sh there's a lot of interesting data that shows that default mode networks are not properly formed in people who have had complex trauma. So there's something going wrong with the formation of that network. So what would be a good way to deal with the trauma? We'll reboot that network so that it forms properly. So expand it and then bring it back down with the right therapist. So it's not, it's not magic it, it's not it's just new physiologies that we haven't been able to look at because we, they ban these substances and if you go and talk to a shaman in peru they'll have their kind of ontological understanding of how those medicines bring about transformation and it looks very different to our western view but all we're doing now is working out the physiology of these healing systems that we're then engaging mm basically no that, that's amazing jamie I, I was just thinking about um because the discussion i know a lot of um people that might listen to us will have seen uh i guess where psychedelic medicine is up to in this country it's still unfortunately being treated as a schedule nine which means it has to really yeah it's, it's only in the territory of clinical trials at the moment for people with ptsd and, and depression they are starting though Mm, yeah which is exactly. you know which is great people are the research you know monash wa it is cowan sydney yes it's, it's beginning and yeah, there's absolutely. a there's a monumental shift happening in within psychiatry you know i know psychiatrists that two years ago would have thought that i was batshit crazy thought <laughs> i was batshit crazy but then they read carhart harris and they read friston and they read the rebus model and they read about brain plasticity in these different states of consciousness and they're like whoa this is real science like yes it's real science it's real human physiology mm. that's what we're doing it just doesn't fit with how we currently operate because we're operating yeah. wrong because we're we're getting to the have-nots oh i've not got depression i've not got anxiety i've not got that knot in my throat not no i'm totally in love with my wife i'm having the best time with my kids i've been surfing every day i'm getting on with everyone at work and i just haven't been this happy and able to function like this for many many years now the question is from from my perspective given that the whole conversation at the moment looks 
at psychedelic medicine being um, dosed under medical supervision, you know, this kind of psycho um, supervised uh, trip that, that people will have. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts. Do you think in the future, if we were to get past that point, you describe medicine as something that you need temporarily from the shelf that people could actually go into their cupboard and microdose MDMA, you know, say for example, to, um, you know, and to, to, would there ever be scope for people to do these types of, um, or to dose self-dose uh, with psilocybin in future? Or do you think that's just dangerous because of the power of these substances? Oh, wow. That's a big one. So microdosing, <laughs> I don't, I don't think we'll be microdosing MD, psilocybin, LSD, maybe it's going to mm. take a long time. It'll have to go through studies and then formulate it in a way that people can't extract it. But then again, they're not drugs of addiction. You know, I've never had a patient come in and say, doc, I just can't talk, stop taking magic mushrooms. Mm. Yeah. You know? I, I just, I just I can't get off the acid doc. I can't do it. It's never <laughs> happened to any doctor in yeah. the world. That's, it's not possible yeah. you know so but that's microdosing that will come um macrodosing i mean it's interesting if you look at the us which is the wild west but field trip are now doing remote psychedelic therapy with ketamine <laughs> wow yeah so it gets sent to you and your guides online um yeah is that I, website I actually, again sorry field field trip they're called okay. field trip yeah, yeah. <laughs> look um Good question. I, mm, I think the I actually think the therapy is really, really important. I think the integration of what happens is really, really important. MDMA is probably a very interactive. If you look at how maps do it, it's far more interactive than psilocybin, which is headphones and eye shades, you know. Um, but I think this is where the danger lies because mm, because of the length of those experiences it's going to cost a lot of money to pay people to sit there. So businesses don't want to pay people to sit there. So how do you do that? Well, you don't have them sitting there or you shorten the experience. Mm. And that's where the research is going to go. And that's where Glaxo and Pfizer are going to get in because they'll have a patentable compound that only lasts for two hours, right? Patented. And mm. then do they have any investment in psychedelics being decriminalized for wider access if they've got the patent for a two hour journey? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the, yeah, I can see them doing that, but whether or not you have the, cause there's something so profound about taking psychedelics where you kind of lock in for the trip, mm. the trip, you know, you kind of accept the fact that I'm here to explore for the next six 12 hours depending on how much you've, you've had you know so whether again though really... it's horses it's different situations isn't it because at the moment we we still do ect for people who are very depressed mm. and i i i'm i'm a fur the, the imperial group have looked into like developing a machine like propofol has where you type in the weight and the the the, the height and the age and it comes up with an algorithm and you tell them you tell the machine you want to do a two-hour procedure and it does does the wash in the wash out the different compartments and it algorithms the actual right. anesthetic for you is, is that yeah, how yeah. algorithms work to optimize dosing for and I, I didn't realize it was that specific that's amazing yes yeah, yeah yeah so they've tried to come up with the same model for dmt mm. so dmt infusion 
put people into the journey very very quickly now for severe depression it sort of makes sense that rather than electrocuting them you can just drop them down into the dmt world for five minutes and bring them out and that's enough to rewire their brain for a time mm. so there's the medical application and then the kind of wellness and there's there's that massive massive continuum my hands don't fit into the screen anymore yeah you know so again it's like yeah how do we how do we this is the thing so we've really got to get to a point in society where we understand that this is basically safe in the right hands and let clinicians practitioners access the treatment so they can help their patients yeah yeah, I think there's a lot of people that still see, I mean, you know, there's enough people out there that still think cannabis is taboo and stoner culture and hippie culture, the exactly. 60s, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if I were to say, and, and you know, even my parents, for example, are very open to, very open to, ca- to cannabis and, you know, those medicines. But if I were to say to them, oh, you should look at, you know, MDMA for treating uh, PTSD or something like that, they'd just be like, I, are you serious? Like that's, that's like getting their head. I think that's another level of, of it's stigma. It's the next that, bridge. Yeah. yeah it's mm. the next, but uh, I think over time that will come down. Um, yeah. I, I think that just similar to cannabis, uh, but, but, you know, I think you, you might be able to do group therapy with them. One exactly. Day you're all that's what happened. Your group therapy. <laughs> yeah. But Above it's, and beyond. It's, <laughs> it's physiology. It's working out why. You know what I mean? So helping people through these difficult processes and why does it work for some people and not others? What, what's the significance of what's coming up for them? How do you know which bit is not real and which bit really relates? You know, and that, that's going to take time. That understanding that the shamans have from 5,000 years of lineage, we don't. And it's but- just going to take time. But is MDMA and psilocybin a little bit more, I guess, like traditional medicine? It, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I'm not actually sure. Um, is it more single molecule acting or is yeah. it not? So oh, it, MDMA that, is for sure. Does that make it more, more predictable in some senses for an outcome than even cannabis, let's say? Um, yes and no. Yes mm. and no. Gosh. So let's take MDMA, right? So maps, mm. all, of their, all of their information was looking at PTSD. Mm. So mostly single event trauma, vets, people have been attacked, sexually assaulted. You know, now that mm-hmm. is very different to complex PTSD. So a life of trauma, uh, you know, memories in systems that are locked way down out of consciousness. They have no memory of their childhood and all the stuff that happened that made them the way they are as opposed to i was attacked when i was 22 and i i you know it spooked me and i haven't been the same since it was like fractal trauma yes you know exactly from trauma from trauma it's fractal trauma it's going on and on and on and on and on and those people don't see that that loss of fit from their environment is what's made their life so difficult Mm. and often the realization from that is oh my gosh it's not me it's my it was my mum." you know and the profoundity of that realization and how destabilizing that could be for somebody to then have to work through their entire life and rebuild every aspect of who they are because it was all false as opposed to someone who was beaten up badly when they were 22 terrible thing to happen really bad ptsd but quite easy to fix mm. 
you know but then if you start and maps did it they had a few people with borderline that got into the treatment groups so borderline being a result of fairly significant complex and ongoing childhood trauma that's led to a disintegration of self they got through and they collapsed became suicidal massive massive care load afterwards you know they were really in trouble because they they treated memory systems that entire psyches were arranged around without mm. knowing it and then you take that memory around that psyche collapses because it was arranged around that traumatic memory system and that's yeah. the danger so single event ptsd very different to complex ptsd and there's a lot of people in these hills running around having experiences and ripping open trauma wounds that you know it's bad and they're not getting the therapy and that's the important bit the therapy is the important bit the molecule just turns the key to pandora's box basically so basically these people have developed complex coping mechanisms that have kept them intact to some degree and yeah they've created a persona let's say out of that and now you're unpacking all of that and they're left with like a rubble of who am I basically yeah yeah okay gotcha and and that then ties back to homeostasis right because psychopathology happens when we don't fit into our world there's a mismatch I'm anxious I'm depressed you know you're constantly being in this sort of stressed hypervigilance let's say because the world is constantly triggering you but the world is safe but they're triggering unconscious memories that they don't have a memory of having so it's like being stuck in a prison do you know what I mean some inception kind of things. It's an inception <laughs> kind of exactly that, right? Yeah, yeah. So then when you start giving people cannabinoids, you're just calming them down. So fight or flight, reptilian brain, no consciousness involved. Mystical experience up in cosmic unity beyond subject and object, prefrontal cortex all the way. And then there's grades between here and here. So when mm. people are really stressed, we give them cannabis and they calm down. And they become homeostatic. And when that happens, higher levels of brain function come online. They get out of that reptilian brain and start to head towards an embodied version of themselves. So, so that's what I'm saying. Once we start to understand that that's how cannabis is working, you're just you're stressed all the time. And you've been so stressed for so long that you don't even know what it feels like to be homeostatic anymore. And then it gets really interesting because you give them cannabinoids and then those people with THC, for instance, makes me paranoid. And it's like, sometimes I envision it like turning an engine on in an old car, you know, well, let's jumpstart it, right? So the CBD is the momentum and the THC is dropping the clutch and firing the receptor. And then when that car starts, a whole bunch of shit comes out of the exhaust. There's black smoke. and blah, 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 blah. So as you start to put people into homeostasis, stuff seems to come up, which they have to confront. Same with psilocybin, you, you drop them into a primary state of consciousness and suddenly all of their terrors and stuff in the past that they've been cut off from come back. So that all has to be worked through. When you start to understand it from that perspective, then it makes sense how these medicines are working and how far away we are from really that understanding getting through. So are you, are you saying you could treat people with cannabis to overcome that anxiety or say even psilocybin to overcome an anxiety that they get from THC, let's say. Oh, well, they're not getting it from THC. They're being made aware of it by THC. That's what I mean. So if you're, if you're removing that, they're being made aware of, a, let's say trauma or an experience or something like that, or a part of their personality, I'm not, I'm not sure, but 
if you deal with that with say the psilocybin or even using cannabis or however you would deal with it as a clinician, can you say, I'm going, I could theoretically remove the anxiety that gets exposed to you when using THC? Yes, but I, that's what I'm saying. You do that in therapy. Mm-hmm. You Very have to start getting into the, you know, the feeling of, of you know, why, what does being feeling, what does paranoid feel like? Well, it feels like no one likes me. feels like everyone hates me. feels like people are talking about me and out to get me, you know, and then you inquire. And what was your childhood like? Oh, yeah, it was pretty grim. And, you know, you get into some deep, deep difficult stuff that the this this state of mind has been there their whole life but they suppress it to exist but they're anxious they're not free-flowing human beings you know so then potentially thc just expands their perspective a little bit sometimes it just makes people feel great they're laughing and sleeping and having a wonderful time but all i'm saying is that if people have thc and feel anxious is there another trauma-informed explanation for that anxiety, which is maybe this is not Satan's molecule. Maybe it can help us to help people to see what's actually going on for them beyond maybe the slightly sort of narrow view that they've developed to survive in the world. Mm. Very interesting. Oh, my goodness. There's quite a bit to unpack there, Andrew. I know. I'm I'm, uh, absolutely loving it. I I think... I'm conscious of time we've we've uh you know you're very generous to to give us so much of your time jay because we know how busy you are with uh with the, the queue of patients up at ananda but um look i'm just going to say I, I would love to do a part two at some point if you were open to it jamie where we maybe explore some of the the stories of of you know some of the patients that that have come through the clinic and um i want to hear you know, all of it, people who it's worked for, who it hasn't worked for, and just get a sense of, I guess, what you've seen in the clinic. But I feel like that could be a whole episode on its own. Oh, it could be a whole episode. I'd love to. I mean, I've seen some of the wildest stuff. I've seen people have full psychedelic experiences from five milligrams of CBD. Yeah. Like literally, like really kind of are you sure you got the right bottle, you know, like, <laughs> and then no, you only gave me CBD. Oh yeah, that's right. I didn't use anything else. Do you know what I mean? Like profound experiences, like really unsettling people, all sorts, people taking too much THC because they thought it was the CBD and then having basically a, an awful experience yeah, and coming out with their depression cleared up, accidental. Yeah, you know, yeah. I took thirty wow. milligrams of THC. Well, that would have been tough. Yeah, it was a grim twelve hours, but I haven't been depressed since. Yeah, just been oh. eating ice cream in that. Well, hole. no, but no, no, good. Like they, they, it, the experience <laughs> finished, but it, it re, it did something in their brain, a la psilocybin. Something yeah. happened in that twelve hour experience. It was awful. <laughs> they said they it can't be good. It can't get much worse than that. So it's all up from here. Yeah, exactly. yeah. like a rewiring <laughs> against that. Something but- like that. Um, well, I look forward to it, and we'll um, we'll pick a yep, time. That's what we do. We, but, we wait uh, till you're on. We wait till you're on camera, so you can't refuse. That's the yeah, that's, yeah, whole, that's yeah. the whole game this plan. The, the, the old Richard <laughs> Andrew Ambush. Um, no, th- thank you so much, Jamie. It's it's genuinely been such a, a fascinating discussion. I'm sure a lot of our listeners yeah. get quite a bit from this, and just hearing as well from a doctor to be 
speaking so holistically about um, you know the power of, of these medicines to, to really help us live our best lives um, far beyond just the simple act of muting symptoms or something that they might be more familiar with when it comes to medicine. So totally, yeah, it's been great. I, I really, I really, I, I think that. this one, this one, I can already feel it is going to get a, a good, uh, good review on Reddit. I can already feel it. Don't <laughs> <laughs> right. right. count your chickens yet, Mitch. Um, all right, no, no, I'm good. At- thanks, uh, thanks so much, Jamie. Until next time, when we. Um, do a deep dive into uh, some of these patient journeys, which we are already looking anonymized, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah. Just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great. I'm looking forward to more discussions. Cheers, Jamie. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Take care. Bye.